Wanna go ahead and read the thing? Alright. On the second floor of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, there is a quiet gallery called the Dutch Room. It's a pleasant place, with four ornate windows opening onto a garden courtyard. There's a plush carpet underfoot, and the air is heavy with the pleasant smells of old books and freshly watered plants. The room is so jammed with art, furniture, and objects, it's difficult to decide what to look at first. There's an elaborate wooden bread box looming over a 19th century table, facing a set of six mahogany chairs with embroidered seats. To the side, dominating the gallery, is a refectory table with a damask tablecloth holding a candelabrum and a Japanese dish. The pleasant dazzle of metal, glass, wood, cloth, and stone, spanning a dozen cultures in five centuries, brings to mind an overstuffed Victorian parlor, albeit on a massive scale and perfectly dusted. But this is an art gallery, and above the jostling furniture and bric-a-brac, the walls are full of paintings. As the name suggests, most are Dutch, and most are portraits, with the room dominated by Rembrandt's 1629 self-portrait. The Dutch room is half gallery and half immersive jewelry box, equal parts flamboyant and plush, but it's also curiously unbalanced. In the middle of the room, the relentless decoration is broken up by three enormous, empty frames, hanging above a half-dozen gilded Venetian chairs. Across from them is another shock, two more empty golden frames, each facing an armchair. Those empty frames, however, weren't always empty. Once, thirty-some years ago, they held five of the most important and valuable works of art in the country. Where those five paintings, and another six museum items, ranging from an original Manet to a near-worthless decorative eagle, went, what happened to them, and where they are now is a mystery that continues to stump private investigators, police detectives, and the FBI. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1990 Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist. Nice work. Love a heist. <laughs> Do you? Correction, I love a fictional mm, heist. I love a heist when it gets solved. Sure. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, night guard at Relative Disasters Security Services. And I'm her brother Greg, art heist analyst at the Relative Disasters investigation firm. Our main sources for this episode are Ulrich Bozer's book, The Gardener Heist, and the excellent documentary miniseries, This is a Robbery. Uh, two of the places where you should start if you are at all interested in this story. How do we feel Sweet. about museum thefts, Greg? Are you as deeply, like, squicked out as I am when someone steals from a museum? I am, because there's the one part of you that's sort of used to the general romance of it all you picture a highly trained team coming mm, with in the lasers and, you know swiping stuff yeah laser barriers yeah. exactly exactly um but in reality it means that irreplaceable pieces of art go missing and possibly destroyed and that's awful so i like them in theory i like them in fiction mm. i don't like them okay. in reality 
Um, they give me a wicked upset stomach every time because museums are for everybody. Yep. I remember uh, uh, Mona Lisa. the theft of the yeah. Mona Lisa. Yeah, that, that was that was that fun was for really you. That was really fun. I loved it. I'm going to love this Steamer one trunk. even more. <laughs> um, the weird thing about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist is that it really could have only happened in this museum. This museum is unique. Sure. It's very odd. Um, so I want to kind of start by telling you a little bit about Isabella and her museum. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, so Isabella was born in 1840 to a wealthy New York family. Isabella's life is not without its share of tragedy. Um, and it okay. begins when she is the only one of her parents' four children to survive to adulthood. Yep. Yeah. 1840s. Yeah. Uh, in 1860, after finishing finishing school, had to uh, read that a couple times before <laughs> I realized it wasn't yep. a typo. After finishing finishing school, which did not appear to dampen her kind of wild streak, Isabella was definitely a wild Excellent. child. Not super obedient, had really good manners, didn't always use them. A lot of fun. <laughs> People describe her as very zesty and full of life, but uh, unpredictable and <laughs> uh, with a scathing wit. Excellent. So when she's 20 years old, she marries John Lowell Gardner Jr., who is the eldest son of a very wealthy, old-money Boston family. Okay. Now, Isabella's family is solidly kind of upper middle class. Jack's family is the 1%. Okay, gotcha. so the Gardner okay. money comes from shipping, railroads, mining, all the things you would expect in this time period for the 1%. Yep. And when he and Isabella get married in 1860, he's one of the wealthiest men in Boston. Okay. They also have almost completely opposite personalities. They're about the same age, <laughs> which kind of makes it okay. a little better to me. <laughs> but sure. Jack is described as really quiet and conservative, and Isabella okay. is just not. Yeah. Not. Yep. She loves parties, travel. She's very. She's a very curious person. She likes okay. to find things out. Um, she loves art. She's very inventive. And she's one of those people who always knows what they want. Cool. Right? She doesn't do a lot of um, hemming, hemming and, and hawing. hawing. She just goes and gets it. <laughs> she has just very clear taste and a lot of opinions. And remember, she's really educated. She's also <laughs> like whip smart. This sounds to me like it would be an absolute nightmare of someone to live with. Uh. I don't know. She sounds she sounds fun. Really fun to me. <laughs> fun to visit. Maybe not be married to. She'd be great as like a, a wild auntie, but you wouldn't want her. Oh as a yes, sibling, I don't think. Or maybe you would. Well, well, I already have a wild and crazy sibling. Oh, you. I could deal with another. So it sounds like it would be kind of an absolute nightmare for Jack <laughs> and for Isabella. Wow. Strangely, they adore each other. And I mean, it makes they sense. seem to have a very happy marriage. She's got the uh, outrovert. He's got the introvert. Exactly, but they both really lean into it. So she's throwing the wild parties, and he's like upstairs in the study, just quietly reading a book. Because I'm a hundred percent here for yeah. that. I want that movie. I want that series of books. <laughs> I'm. I just want the life and times of Isabella and Jack. You know, marriages are always. I don't know, difficult in their own weird ways, but it seems to me like they have a lot of money, they enjoy spending it, they have a good time together. Okay, that's the vibe. Gotcha. Again, with the tragedy, Jack and Isabella has, have 
one son, Jack Jr., who dies as a toddler just before his second birthday. And following that, just to make it a little worse, Isabella has a miscarriage that's so bad it leaves her unable to have children. You know, Isabella is distraught. She takes to her bed. She is just unable to cope. Um, And what the doctor suggests to Jack is that she should travel. Sure, because that's how grief works. Apparently she's so sick that she has to be carried onto the boat. Um, But once they get to Europe... She perks up. She starts feeling better. Okay. So at this point, they they really start to pour a lot of their energy into traveling. Sure. They start raising their three nephews after Jack's brother dies, and Isabella starts okay. getting interested in art. Um. So from the time that she starts traveling until like 1891, Isabella is just like kind of a sponge, right? She hangs out with poets and writers. She becomes obsessed with baseball. <laughs> weirdly nice (laughs) um she starts collecting manuscripts and books she travels around the world she'll go to asia europe uh north africa um she gets really interested in porcelain she meets john singer Sargent and kind of becomes his patron and she just starts like developing all these connections with artists dealers other collectors and other interesting people she's buying things but not seriously like she's decorating her mansion gotcha up until 1891 she's just living her best life sure incredible parties incredible vacations etc <laughs> in 1891 isabella's father dies and she inherits a pile of money remember she's okay. the only heir right and right. now that she has this huge budget this is when she starts to get serious about art because by now she knows what she wants and she has friends who are able to help her get it Okay. Uh, weird little sidebar for you. It's really strange to think yes. about, but at this time, uh, Vermeer, Titian, Rembrandt, and like the other artists we think of as the old masters, they're not yeah. particularly valuable the okay. way they are today. So in 1891, Isabella is able to buy at auction Vermeer's The Concert for $6,000, Greg. Oh, my God. $6,000. This is considered to be one of his masterpieces. You know, he only painted 34 paintings that are still in existence. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, but that's $6,891, right? Vermeer's The Concert is valued at $250 million today. So that's a considerable so if you've got that kicking around in your garage oh we'll get to that we'll get to that over the next seven years so throughout the 1890s um she has the help of this unscrupulous but very effective art dealer (laughs) everyone needs one of those okay sure (laughs) uh she acquires some major works including pieces by titian Raphael, and rembrandt she collects hundreds of artists i'm just gonna give you the highlights wow At this point, her collection is outgrowing their mansion, and she starts thinking seriously (laughs) about where she's going to put it. Okay. Storage unit in Teaneck, New Jersey. Absolutely not her style. No, it wouldn't be. She just Can't she just buy another mansion and start decorating that (laughs) one? That's what I would do, but that's not her style. Okay. All right. All right. So a lot of art collectors collect art as an investment, or they do it to decorate their mansion, or they acquire pieces they intend to donate, or they acquire things they want their heirs to benefit from. Isabella is not that kind of collector. She's more like smog. She wants to have a pile of all the best things in the world, and she wants to hang on to it forever. I dig it. 
I dig it. She's she's a modern day dragon. I'm really good with this. That's a great analogy. Thank you, Ella. But she's buying things for keeps. She's not going to sell anything, even things she overpaid for or finds out later they aren't actually by the artist she thought. And she's certainly not going to donate them to a museum because she doesn't like the idea of art sitting in storage. Mm, okay. Quick sidebar. Did you know that most art museums only display about 10% of their holdings at one time? I did know that. Yeah. Basements. And the rest of the time it sits in very large storage containers. I mean, climate controlled. Now, climate controlled, yeah. Really nice storage container. So what she decides to do is build a museum and put her entire collection on display together. I'm, I'm here, I'm here for, it. for it too. This sounds great. I think it's a, it's yeah. kind of a brilliant idea if you think about it. If you think about the way she amasses yeah. her collection, like she's literally just walking around through the world, finding <laughs> things she likes and putting them together. That's great. Uh, in 1898, again with the tragedy, her husband yeah. Jack dies suddenly of a stroke. Isabella is devastated. And she reacts by throwing herself wholeheartedly into the museum project. Remember, she now has this enormous fortune. She has her money and she has the current money. And she has absolutely no one to answer to. No heirs, no husband, no parents. (laughs) So she can do exactly what she wants. Yeah, exactly. That was what I was going to say. I mean, she could always kind of do exactly what she wants, but she always kind of had other people's opinions in the room with her. And now she doesn't. Okay, so at this point, she designs a building that's intended to be kind of an inside-out Venetian palazzo. Okay. From the street, it is not an attractive building. It looks like an office building or like a (laughs) moderately priced apartment building. Okay. It's a block. It's kind of drab. Yeah. It's brown. It's not fancy. It's a little too big for the lot that it's on. Okay. But when you go inside, you're in a different world. Like, you can't hear the traffic. You can't smell the garbage. You are in a completely enclosed (laughs) environment. It's almost like being on another planet. It's just an absolute experience to be inside. So the building is four stories surrounding a central courtyard. The courtyard is glass roofed and it has a garden in the middle. That's a live garden with a fountain and live plants. All of the galleries or most of the galleries open onto this courtyard. Some of the windows are glazed. Some are not. So you can kind of smell the garden and hear the fountain throughout. Uh, And then the intention is that you, the visitor, you walk through these themed rooms, which are full of not just art, but books, tapestries, tiles, furniture. Everything is chosen and placed by Isabella. And her taste is great, but it's a little weird. Like it's very specific and very unusual. It's not what you'd expect from a professional museum curator, even one with an unlimited budget. (laughs) Because that's not her. (laughs) No, she's just doing what she wants with the space. That's great. She really doesn't care about like mixing periods or styles or cultures. She loves a clashing color. She doesn't care about preservation, like exposing things to direct sunlight. Okay, that's not great. And she's got this like beautiful indoor garden. Well, the humidity of it is like feet away from a Yeah, I was going to (laughs) ask. Okay. (laughs) Like she just puts everything the way she wants it. And the result is this eclectic, like, colorful, unique museum experience. It sounds like you're kind of visiting her house with all her stuff Exactly. In it. And actually, for the last few years cool. of her life, she lives at the museum on the fourth floor and what? uses the rest of it that's for parties. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. When she dies in 1924, Isabella leaves a very specific will. Are you shocked? No. 
not even not a, little a little bit, bit right nope <laughs> the will says that everything in the museum has to stay exactly as it is okay the okay. museum is a time capsule nothing is to be added or removed nothing is to be moved okay. uh redecorated nothing is to be freshened up she does okay. allow for conservation work did she leave like provisions for if a natural disaster hits the building or anything I think Isabella is at that level of wealth where you don't really think about that stuff. Ah, gotcha. She put the museum gotcha. together. Because she put the museum together, it's going to run flawlessly forever, I think is the idea. I see. Okay. She leaves $3 million as an endowment. That's not for buying okay. new art. That's for care and staffing. Okay. On the other hand, the museum is to remain open to the public. Of course, you have to buy a ticket, but anyone can get in. And sure. yeah. if your name is Isabella, you get in for free. That's in her will. <laughs> what? That's fantastic. Great, right? uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of the collection, when she dies, the collection includes 7,500 paintings and sculptures, a 3,000 volume rare book library, and 7,000 cultural artifacts. So that's a bit of work then. Well, it gives you a sense. Sorry. It gives you a sense of how big the museum is because all these things yeah. are on display. Or almost yeah. all those things are on display. Okay. Um, and how eclectic it is. It's just sure. a wide range of everything. Okay. okay. Now, $3 million in 1924 sounds like a lot, but remember, the museum does not have electricity at this point. Okay. okay. So within 30 years of Isabella's death, the museum staff and the board of trustees have to rethink all kinds of things from dehumidifying the gallery rooms yeah. to securing what is now an extremely valuable collection. Okay. By the 1980s, okay. they have electricity and they've installed a state-of-the-art motion detector security system, but they're also almost broke. They can't afford properly trained guards and they don't have okay. insurance on any of the major pieces in the collection. Oh, no. I was actually really surprised to hear that most museums don't insure the artwork that they have on display until it leaves, like until it comes off the wall to go to other institutions or like out for conservation. I guess that makes sense in a certain view of things. It's like that's when things are most likely to go wrong. Somebody, right. you know, slips and trips down the stairs or something. But you have to remember, artwork is not a commodity like gold or corn. Like, it's unique. Right. It's not replaceable. And yeah. the value of a piece is subjective. It fluctuates. Insurance can be incredibly expensive. Um, and most museums do have, like, building insurance. So if there's a fire or whatever, they're covered. So you can see why a lot of places, especially um, places that are struggling financially, which the gardener absolutely is in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, you can see why they just don't bother. Sure. That makes sense. In a terrible way. We love yes. insurance. In the 1980s, the art market goes crazy. Yeah. There's a lot of cocaine. I did not. <laughs> the cocaine has nothing to do with it. <laughs> One thing I did not fully appreciate. Well, there's appreciate. a lot of money laundering and a lot of, sorry. One thing I did not fully <clears throat> yes. appreciate before I started looking mm -hmm. at the story was that the art market is the largest unregulated market in the world. Yeah, it's, I, there's a lot of uh, speculation on how that can be used for good and evil. There sure is. Yeah. Like suddenly you have yep. lesser known artists who painted a few things. And all of a sudden, they're worth triple and quadruple what they were 10 years ago. Um, yep. It's just, it's a wild time to be in the art market. 
Sure. Uh, because we can't have nice things, this is also the time when art <laughs> theft becomes a huge problem. Well, you say problem. I say, say opportunity. Profit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to give you some wild examples that I okay. blew my mind. Um, okay. So in 1983, Van Gogh paintings worth $90 million are stolen from a Dutch museum and ransomed back for $2 million. In okay. 1986, 18 paintings, including a Vermeer, are stolen from an Irish museum and recovered five years later in a sting operation. Uh, okay. In 1975, Boston art thief Miles Connor swipes a Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Art, which he uses later to bargain down his jail time. Uh-huh. So the thing is... <laughs> that seems like a zero-sum game right there, bud. It depends on how much you like stealing artwork, and Miles Connor really I, likes it. <laughs> I mean, if he was in it for the joy of the theft, sure, that's fine. It's but an experience. You can't put a price tag on that. That's right. Some people, they go to Disney World. Some people, they steal it's, art. Anyway. I wouldn't expect you to understand. <laughs> so the thing is, as art is becoming more valuable, museums are slow to catch up with the increased need for security. So in that last theft that I told you about, Miles Connor walked into the museum he took a Rembrandt off the wall and ran out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm. I'm laughing at the sheer audacity of it, not like the end result. Because all I can imagine is some like, you know, clown music playing in the background while mm -hmm. somebody just grabs it and tries to stuff it under like an overcoat or something. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. He just waited until the guards were looking away. Grabs it off the wall, kicks oh it out of the museum. <laughs> See, and 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 you're saying that they're not supposed to be able to do that. So here's the thing: the MFA is a big museum with a lot of money, and they could afford to hire sure. a lot of professional guards and train them and station them around the museum. It only has two entryways. You would think it would be you would be able to secure it with those resources. Sure. Sure. Um, and they were still unable to prevent this theft, which is one of the most valuable paintings in the museum at the time. That is just bananas. I, yeah, it's a wild world. So he, he turned art theft into a game of tag, basically. And he did go to jail. But, I mean, he got then, caught right away. He went to jail. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> this is not some, some uh, heroic or anti-hero story. No, no, no. Two blocks away from the Museum of Fine Art is the Gardner Museum, with its tiny endowment, super valuable artwork, and unique constrictions. And no security guards and a motion detector Not system. true. They do have security guards. And uh -huh. they're aware of the problem. So in 1988, they do a security assessment okay. with an outside firm. And they find out that while <laughs> the motion detectors are working properly, right, and there okay. is 24-hour surveillance and security, there are some pretty big weak spots. Okay. The exterior doors, and I think there are four or five of them. Okay. They are the only ones that are alarmed. So once you're in the building, you're past the alarms. Right. No other alarms basically. go off okay. when you're moving around inside the building, except for those motion detector uh, alarms. And the motion detectors mm. only show the person sitting at the front desk that a motion detector alarm has been activated. Okay. okay. So it's not like it calls the police if someone's in the gallery, and they shouldn't be. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there's only one video camera. Also not and great. And it tapes onto a VHS tape at the security desk. And then they either loop it or tape mm -hmm. over it. Because you got to save that yep. money. Yep. So that one the coming. The biggest problem is a human resources problem. So instead of hiring ex-cops like the MFA does, 
uh, paying sure. them well and training them. The gardener is in the habit of hiring musicians for no. one or two dollars over minimum wage. No. Their training is a half hour videotape about museum security. <laughs> oh my God. And then their policies around showing up to work drunk or stoned are real lax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Isabella would have wanted it I that way. I feel like that is one area where she would have been. I feel like she would not. At no. the same time, she would she not would have wanted, wanted her that collection way. protected. This is all going to be fine, it's right? Everybody's fine. happy? Yep. yep. Uh, okay. The museum takes this security advisement, takes this security assessment into advisement. Remember, they're sure. not broke. Uh, yep. They have not made any steps towards improvement by St. Patrick's Day weekend. So we're at 1990 1990, now? yeah. Well, I guess it would be like okay. 18 months later. It's pretty yeah. soon on the heels of this yeah. security assessment. Uh, quick sidebar for St. <laughs> Patty's Day in Boston. I don't oh, know God. if you knew this. Boston has a huge Irish and Irish-American community, and St. Patrick's is a major holiday. Right? Yeah. Great events, lots of drinking. I guess so. Uh, with wow. that, obviously, okay. comes a little bit of trouble. The police have their hands full all weekend, and they're in downtown Boston. Yeah. Um, they're not messing around in the quiet areas like the Fenway, which is where the museum is. On the night of March 18th, which is that Saturday night, two college students happen to spot a pair of policemen in a car on Palace Road, just outside the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Okay. The students remember this because... They spot these guys wearing patrol officer uniforms, but they're sitting in like a little Dodge hatchback, which is idling on the street. Yeah. The kids think it's weird, but it's St. Patrick's Day weekend. They're drunk and on their way to drink some more and off they go. Yep. At 1.20 a.m., the two men get out of their car and buzz the museum's front door. Okay. The door is locked from the inside, and to get in, you have to be buzzed in by the security guard at the desk there are two guards in the museum at this time and they're either so one is always at the desk and one is always patrolling the galleries okay um the security guard at the desk lets them in because the police officers we're going to put that in air quotes the police officers uh tell the security guard that there's been a disturbance they got a phone call about a disturbance and they need to come inside and check it out it is saint patrick's day Uh weekend This is the kind yeah. of thing that the police do on St. Patrick's Day weekend, so they get buzzed in. Yeah. Okay. At that point, they ask the security guard to step away from the desk. Now, they're in a kind of like a airlock, like a man trap. So you go yeah. in the front door, there's another locked door, and then the security desk is behind a glass window in a, like a separate sure. cubby. Okay. Okay. So when they see the security guard at the desk, they say... You look familiar. Do you mind coming out here so we can take a look at you? And he does. Okay. Um, At that point, they say they have a warrant for his arrest, and they put him in handcuffs. They have him call the other guard down, and they handcuff him, too. At that point, they say, this is a robbery, and they start wrapping duct tape around their faces and heads. This, to me, is so horrible. If you see pictures of these guys at all, the... First security guard, the guy at the desk, has really long, curly hair, and they just mash the tape all over his head. Um, For me, I can't imagine how scared these guards must have been. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And this this is kind of the thing I was worried about. Can we just kind of skip to the end? Do they kill the guards? 
Uh, no, they don't. Okay, okay. Right. Are you going to be okay? Then please, continue. <laughs> I'll okay. make it. I'll make it. I just, you know, they're college kids. They're musicians working from basically minimum wage. And then yeah. now they've got people who are there to rob them. I don't know. That's that, that's a scary moment. Both guards are terrified. Both guards cooperate without giving these guys any problems. Um, they're 23 and 25 years old. They're making $7 an hour. Like, what else are you going to do yeah. in that situation? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the robbers take the guards to the basement. They lock them. They handcuff them to pipes. And they just leave them okay. there in the dark. Which had to have been cool. terrifying. These poor guys. Yeah. Okay. From then on, upstairs in the galleries, the only witness is the motion detector system. Okay. And they tell us both a lot and not very much at all. So what sure. they say is that this thieves spent 81 minutes in the museum, which is a long time for a robbery. Please remember, Miles Connor, when he stole the Rembrandt, he was in the museum about a total of three minutes. Yeah, and I mean, that's a long time to... It really feels like a long time. And we don't really yeah. know what they were doing, which also <laughs> makes me feel a little sick to my stomach. Uh, so they I were spray painting mustaches and all the uh, Rembrandts. Shut up, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Okay. Uh, this part makes me feel a little sick to my stomach, so I won't dwell on it. Yep. But okay. they take okay. two major Rembrandt paintings off the wall of the Dutch room. They break the glass. Okay. They okay. unscrew the canvas from the frame, and then they cut the canvas off the stretchers with a knife. So what they take away is just the canvas with the picture uh, painted on it. Okay, that's probably fine, right? That's easily preserved and nothing bad's going to happen no, to the painting, No, these paintings right? are 400 years old. I know! The minute they get uh, off that pressure that the stretcher is putting on them, they start to warp and crack and tear because obviously they're not doing this in a very careful way. Deep breath, deep breath. Is it, is it weird that I kind of like the guy who stole the Mona Lisa a little bit more now? You start to feel less bad about that because it's on a board. Like, it's it's a much more stable thing to take. This is like, just, oh, it's man. It's awful. Okay. It's awful. Okay. 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 They take a very small Rembrandt self-portrait out of its very small frame for some reason. Okay. Uh, still in the same room. They take an oil-on-wood landscape by Gouvert Flink out of its frame. Okay. And then they smash the glass and cut out a Vermeer painting, The Concert, which is Isabella's first major purchase. No. Yep. They okay. also grab an ancient Chinese ritual vessel off a nearby table. Okay. okay. Just for Just giggles? Just for giggles. When they're done there, they move into a hallway gallery and try to get a Napoleonic battle flag. Did I tell you Isabella collected everything she liked? <laughs> yes. Yes, so you did. And that's like great. So this is just like a fancy battle flag with sequins and embroidery. Um, it's in okay. a case. They try to get it out of its case, but the case has a lot of screws and they can't get it open. So they end up just grabbing okay. the finial instead, the little decorative piece at the top, uh, which is a gilt eagle. It's real tacky uh, it's not worth anything sure. sure that room also has a lot of drawings and prints and they take five diga sketches off the wall and again unframe them no not cool <laughs> none of this is cool Greg. Not, not cool you guys 
There is one more work taken, but it's either stolen at a different point during the night or the motion detector wasn't working properly in that gallery. And that's a little oil portrait by Edouard Manet of a man in a top hat drinking a glass of beer. It's a really charming piece. I like it. Oh, okay. This is weird. Also, the thieves take it out of the frame and instead of dumping it on the floor like the others, they place the empty frame on the security chief's office chair. Oh, you right? dicks. Such a dick move. Sorry, we should probably... <laughs> oh, you, you dirty rascal. You, you jerks. <laughs> what a garbage move, man. Don't... Come on. And then the thieves leave. Nobody sees them leave. They do, I think, two trips to whatever vehicle is waiting for them outside. And okay. they get about a five-hour head start before the morning shift arrives and the theft is reported. Okay. I just want to go over with you what an incredibly weird assortment of things they stole. Okay. Yeah, it, it seems like kind of, it almost seems like they just kind of walked in and grabbed whatever he they felt like grabbing. It doesn't sound like this was super well organized. It is and it isn't. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it's very well organized until they got like to where they were and were like, oh, I don't know, grab some art. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. This is one of the things that nobody can get their head around because they're okay. not taking the most valuable pieces of work in the museum. I mean, they're taking the most valuable piece of work. That's the yes. premiere of the concert. Yeah. Um, and they're taking an incredibly valuable and beautiful Rembrandt, this beautiful storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is his only seascape. Um, it's a yeah, biblical story, I've seen the a biblical theme, and it's yeah. just a dazzling dazzling painting yeah it's gorgeous it's gorgeous but then they're ignoring his self-portrait and grabbing instead this very kind of severe portrait of two people okay Okay, lady and gentleman in black and it's just it's kind of a i don't want to say it's a nothing piece because it's a rembrandt (laughs) yeah but it's not exciting and interesting the way that the self-portrait is the self-portrait again was taken off the wall but was not stolen right and then you have that landscape, which is not yeah. exciting or interesting or big or valuable. And then you have this okay. tiny little self-portrait. The self-portrait is like half the size of a playing card. It's a budget piece, wow. right? It's an etching. Okay. It's okay. a print, so it's not even unique. Sure. Okay. And then you move into the hallway where you have the Degas pieces. Degas is a great painter. His work is very valuable, but it's not Vermeer valuable. It's right, not Rembrandt right. valuable, right? And these are not it, his famous like bronzes or ballet paintings. Sure. Isabella has a beautiful Degas piece, like a full finished portrait hanging feet away. I think it's one room away. They don't take that. Okay. They take a finished sketch of an interior, um, a half finished landscape sketch, and then three doodles, huh. like like different pieces, drawings on paper that are like, the neck of a mus- musical instrument, um, a hand, a leg. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it's so weird. And then the two sculptural pieces just don't make any sense. Like the Chinese vessel is very old and very beautiful. It's not valuable at all compared to almost anything else in the room. Okay. And the the eagle, <laughs> like it's just a yeah. Eagle. That's just. It's weird. You can buy the same eagle on eBay for fifty bucks. <laughs> The same eagle. Did they think it was like made of actual gold they or something? Have. 
Yeah, okay. I mean, it does okay. look like it I mean, might be solid gold. The flag is very fancy. Sure. But it's not. You know, it's... it's <laughs> and it's, like, on the modern and tacky side. Like I said, it's not super pricey. It's just a weird it's just thing weird. to grab. Well, we can't take the flag, so we're just going to grab an eagle. <laughs> Aren't there other super valuable paintings in the museum that they just never... Absolutely, there are. Like a pr- yeah, okay. so the most valuable painting okay. I think when Isabella died was her Titian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Europa, right? right? It's, it's big, but it's you yeah. know, beautiful and valuable. She has, I'm not going to go through it all, but she has incredibly valuable paintings. Like if you wanted to take the valuable stuff, you would have targeted the valuable stuff. So in taking this weird grab bag of stuff. They're leaving behind some yeah. incredibly valuable paintings. If they were there to steal paintings, yeah. they left just millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on the walls. Yeah. Um, if they were not there to steal just paintings, they're leaving behind gold jewelry, yeah. books that are very valuable. It's just you don't get a sense of what... What were they after exactly? exactly. Like, it's not a very well designed heist. Like in a in a movie heist, you go in, you grab the diamond, sure. you escape. Okay, I'm thinking of uh, Wallace and Gromit there, the penguin with the glove on his head. <laughs> yeah, no, the penguin. That penguin had a plan. <laughs> he man. had a plan. He went for the most valuable thing in the museum. He got it, and then he escaped. That is not yeah. this heist. It's so weird because it's like they're obviously professional thieves. But like yes. you said, once they get inside, they do not behave like professional thieves. <sighs> they don't even behave like the penguin with the glove on his head. They take too long. They they have no clear target. Their entrance was the best thought out part of all this. Right. It was almost like they weren't expecting to exactly. get let in the door. That's exactly what it sounded like to me. <laughs> oh my god. Like they were going to try it. And like gather data yeah. for another attempt, and they just were shocked. And then they get inside, and they're like, "Well, as long as we're here, we might as well steal some of this." Okay, so when the morning shift shows up, the police obviously are called immediately. The FBI are called in almost immediately, and the museum sure. staff gets to work cleaning up and assessing the theft. Okay. Everybody concludes these are professional thieves. They had a plan. They had resources. They knew how to get in and where to go. They also knew there was a secret door in the Dutch room or a door okay. that you couldn't see. Like it's, it's wallpapered over. Um, it just okay. is like a shortcut between the conservation area and the gallery. They knew that that door was there because they opened it and went through and left it open. Uh, that's inside job, right? That, inside job. Yeah. Well, it means they at least had knowledge of the plans of the building. Maybe it's not the kind of thing you'd find in the dark. I guess is there. No, exactly. So exactly. Immediately the FBI thinks that the guards are involved. The guards are alive, by the way. They're in the basement. Good. Um, yes. They are thank interviewed you. extensively, as you can imagine. Yeah. Isabella's will stipulates that if her collection is ever broken up, Harvard College, okay. her husband's alma mater, gets everything. No. Isabella was one of those people. <laughs> if I can't have it exactly the way I want, fair enough. Nobody fair can enough. have it at all. Uh, did Harvard get it then? Does this count as broken okay, up? So the way her will is written, um, I'm going to read you read you a quote. Quote: 
If the trustees shall at any time change the general disposition or arrangement of any articles which shall have been placed in the first, second, and third stories of the museum at my death, except the kitchen and adjoining bedrooms, then I give the said land, museum, pictures, statuary, works of art, and bric-a-brac, furniture, books, and papers, and the shares, and the trust fund to the president and fellows of Harvard College in trust to sell. Ooh. End quote. <laughs> Okay. However, the trustees and the mu- and the museum administration did not give the museum to Harvard College after the theft. What they okay. decided to do was assume that the work would be found and returned, and they repaired and rehung okay. the empty frames for each piece in the spot that they'd been before. Because nothing's allowed to be moved. Which is why, when you go to the museum today, <laughs> they have empty, there are empty frames, frames on the that's... wall. Yep. I'm not going to lie, that's kind of pretty cool it is certainly intriguing i think if you go there and you don't know about the theft you think it's like a weird contemporary art piece but someone is always on hand to tell you oh no no that was stolen. no that stuff got stolen yeah. and then you get the whole story <laughs> okay okay so the police and the fbi kind of assumed that they'd catch the thieves within a few months or a few years because that's usually yep. how it works these are recognizable famous works of art um yeah you would expect something to pop up Um, they put out an alert at the major auction houses and they offer a large reward right away because, you know, the museum wants these things back as fast as possible. Uh, but let me tell you what the FBI thinks happened. Okay. Okay. I'm here for it. So at the time of the robbery, the FBI in Boston did not have a dedicated art theft group. They're kind of putting it together on the fly and talking to different experts and so forth. The initial investigation is not super organized. Um, I hate to tell you, some of the evidence was actually lost. Uh, Uh, Some of the crime scene stuff was not handled forensically the way it should have been. They never find anything. There's no hair. There's no fingerprints. There's no, like, drops of blood from all that smashing glass. There's basically nothing to tie anyone. Okay, nothing that we know about that they've released to the public. To tie anyone definitively to this crime. Okay. Uh, But also, the FBI in Boston at this time is concentrating on cracking down on the cocaine trade and organized crime, which is a huge problem. Ah, okay. So without an obvious connection to the mob, this theft is, you know, it's important. They're working on it, but it's not a super high priority from them. them. Sure, yeah. Right. They do a lot of interviews. Uh, they talk to those two guards for hours and hours, days and days. The two oh, guards sure, yeah. are both cooperative. What they're there for is really just to patrol the museum, keep an eye on the fire alarms, and, you know, let the next shift in, keep the doors locked. Yeah. You know, the basics. Sure. This one guard who was at the desk when the robber showed up, he had patrolled the museums just before they showed up. And he okay. did a few things that seemed suspicious that you can tell from the motion detectors that he definitely did and that he admitted to. Um, he okay. went through that room where the Manet was. Remember how okay. the motion detectors did not go off when the thieves were in the building? Yeah. So the thought immediately was that he had pulled the Manet off the wall. Oh, and given that the okay, frame gotcha. showed up in the security officer's chair and that he chair. did not get along yeah. with the security chief, um, you know, it's a little... It's circumstantial. It's a little suspicious. I want to make a story there. I can't quite get there. 
It's kind of a stretch. Um, he also shut off the fire alarms. And then they what? both cooperated okay. fully with the thieves when the thieves showed up. Sure. But from the beginning, they're both cooperative. Their story never changes. And they yeah. never come into any money. They don't like disappear a year later and turn up like in Belize with a mansion. Right. So you would expect that if they if they were in this for money, they would eventually get money. Yeah. I found um, interviews as late as like the 2010s where they were talking about this in the media and they talk about it. You know what? What the one guard always says is that he's just so grateful to be alive. He was sure that they were yeah. going to be killed. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly, I'm a little like that's one other thing that kind of strikes me as thankfully mm -hmm. unprofessional about the guys because they did show up, you know, without masks on. And mm -hmm. were they able to put together any kind of sketches of their face or okay. anything? Or, so they were. I mean, they were in like police uniforms. They're in police so. uniforms and they had fake mustaches on, which is so 80s. That's so amazing. All right. Um, however. Yeah. The two guards and the two teenagers that they ran into in the street outside gave completely different descriptions. Ah, well. So one was pre-mustache adhering, <laughs> and one was after they put the so mustaches. On. They did this sketch where they did one sketch of each robber, and those were the sketches they circulated. But then they went back and talked okay. to the eyewitnesses again, and they ended up coming up with six separate sketches. The six separate sketches Oof. could be anyone. Anybody, yeah. yeah we know that they useless. were white guys. They may or may not have mustaches. They had some hair. <laughs> uh, they were somewhere between five and six and seven feet tall. They had complexions, noses, <laughs> ears, eyes. We believe that they had both One eyes. Each. That's what the mm. sketches tell you. So it really narrowed it down. I mean, they they've got them cornered at Absolutely. this point. Absolutely, Boston's a big town, but it's not big enough for that kind of. <laughs> big enough for those guys to hide so the investigation kind of goes from in two directions from this if the guards are innocent then they're talking about organized crime the two sure. major organized crime groups organizations associations <laughs> clubs crime organizations <laughs> there are two in boston that are operating at this time one has ties to the ira the Re irish republican army Sure, that'd be Whitey Bulger's exactly. guys, right? So, uh, Whitey Bulger, who's probably the most powerful yep. local crime boss uh, with those affiliations, he's interviewed about the paintings, but he yeah. says pretty definitively that he has never seen the paintings. Fair enough. It's not that we're expecting Whitey Bulger to confess, um, but the reward right. is in the millions. You would expect to hear something yeah. from somebody if they had proof. Okay, okay. The FBI turned to the Italian mafia, the Cosa Nostra, who were active in the city during the 80s and 90s. Okay. Although they don't get their hands <laughs> on any proof, they start to hear rumors that these thieves were working for part of a gang based in Dorchester, which is a neighborhood in South Boston. Okay. The problem here is that they take forever to like trace these guys to this auto body shop that they're working out of. And by the time they're ready to release the names... It's yeah. 2013, and both of those guys had died in 1990 and 1991 oh. without confessing or trying to sell the paintings. Uh, okay. Again, you would so... expect. <laughs> you would expect that someone in those circles 
who saw the paintings or knew something about them or knew where they were stored or had heard something about them, there's so much money in this reward by now. Yeah. It's like up to $10 million by 20, 2005. You Jeez. would expect that kind of money to shake something loose, and it just never does. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about two like kind of funny con stories that we know about for sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so in 1997, this very shady art dealer who's actually associated with our friend Miles Connor, who stole the Rembrandt. Sure. He yep. shows a reporter <laughs> what he claims is the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Like he takes this guy to New York City in the middle of the night and shows him a painting in a storage unit. Okay. Uh, it doesn't quite match. So the reporter obviously is not an art expert, but he goes back to the museum and they ask him questions about what it looked like, uh, what he okay. noticed about the painting. Some of it matched up and some of it didn't. I didn't know Rembrandt used a child's watercolor set. It's more like they knew <laughs> what the edges of the painting would look like from the way it was hacked out of the stretcher. Oh, So they okay. were asking okay. questions about okay. like what shape the corners were in and stuff like that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, this so the reporter goes back to this art dealer and he's like, "Hey, it sounds like you don't have the right painting." And the art dealer gives him chips, like paint chips that he said flaked paint off chips. the canvas. Okay. Okay. The paint chips are definitely from the right era, but they're the wrong colors. So at that point, okay. they're just like, "Okay, you're trying to con us," and they kind of cut him out of the investigation. So he's got some other old painting. He's got okay. So he's got either a fake that's good enough to fool a layperson, sure. And then he's got paint chips from a different painting, something in that period. era. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. like the okay. right pigments and stuff, but not the right colors. Sure. Uh, this is my favorite. In 2017, a con man in Virginia attempts to sell the Vermeer through Craigslist for fifty million dollars. No. Craigslist. What? No. What? So period. No. <laughs> Love it. <He>, what? <laughs> you will be astonished to know <laughs> that he was arrested and turned out not to have the painting. I am astonished. That's madness. I mean, why would you put something up on Craigslist that you didn't have? Craigslist is a bastion of truthful advertising and non-sketchy I'm very people. surprised. I... You know, it's just one bad apple. We really can't trust anything these days if we can't trust Craig and his list. <laughs> just, that was so funny. Modern times. Oh my god. That is insane. Okay. As of today, the Gardner Museum is still offering a $10 million reward, which has never been claimed. Wow. It is still yeah. displaying the empty frames of 11 stolen paintings. None of the paintings have verifiably been seen since the robbery. They literally came off the wall, left the museum, and vanished. Uh, the suspects wow. identified through the FBI investigation are dying off. And sure. unfortunately, no one is leaving behind any mysterious safe deposit boxes, deathbed confessions, or closets with secret compartments. It is still an open investigation, and it remains the largest property crime in U.S. history. And mm. that is the story of the Gardner Museum heist. Now, I may be wrong in this, but didn't the FBI say, 
like they knew who, like didn't they release a statement that said they knew who stole yes, them that was in 2013 okay so the fbi knows who took them but they can't find the okay art. so those or or they say they know who they took say them. that they said that they identified the thieves not who the thieves were working okay. for the people that they suspect one of them died of a cocaine overdose in 1991 so within months of this robbery and the other one was yep. murdered around the same time okay it just yeah. doesn't it's not satisfying to the story <laughs> sure all right well on that depressing note <clears throat> there's no good ending to this there's no good ending to I this apologize. one that's all right that's all right we'll it's take unsolved. it it's a disaster it's an unsolved mm. disaster Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let Ella know. Excuse me? <laughs> you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And why not? Why not use our Instagram, <laughs> at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, I'm on kind of a uh, beasts killing people tear right now. Uh, we did the Beast of Gévaudan last time, and uh, next time we are going to talk about what happens when you try to build a railway through an area where there are two lions who really like eating people? On the next episode of Relative Disasters, we are going to talk about the Tsavo Lions. Oh, man. Yeah. Great. Can't wait. Can't wait, Greg. <laughs>